This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Now, I'm reliably told it's that time of year when people feel that overpowering urge to dig, to get their hands in the dirt, whether it's in the backyard or the vegetable garden or in the flower pots that are legally teetering on the fire escape. They place their seeds or delicate little seedlings in the soil, dreaming of the bounty to come. I have a confession to make. I'm not one of those people. I'm happy to buy vegetables in the supermarket, and maybe I'll keep some florists in business for all of us. But someone who goes in for all that dirty work is my colleague, Jill Lepore. I'm a, I'm a pretty terrible gardener. I, I love to plant things, but I'm terrible at actually growing anything. But I just love the whole process. I love the just muck of it. Jill Lepore is a staff writer as well as a professor of history at Harvard University. Jill, as, as you know, this is my area of, oh God, of least expertise imaginable. I think I once... Do you grow a potato in a glass of water when you're a kid? Is that what you do? You stick a potato yeah, in Yeah, or you put like electrodes on it and try to get potato electricity for the science fair. I might have that done counts. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seems more of your the kitchen alley. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to know what it does for you. In other words, you you have kids, you have dogs, you write lots of books, you write for the New Yorker, you teach at Harvard. I, where do you a where do you fit it in and why do you fit it in what's it do for your soul oh it um uh it's therapy for anxiety is that too embarrassing to admit not at all it um i get i really lose equilibrium if i'm not actively doing something that's probably why i write so much i i become a pain in the neck to have around if i'm not <laughs> engaged in something that's really stimulating but also to the point of exhaustion and um gardening <laughs> gardening actually is that but without the kind of manic stimulation right it's quite exhausting like you have to really think about it a lot like i like like lying in bed at night when, what are you going to think about when you're trying to get to sleep well you could be thinking about how much you organize this essay what would be a good lead or what would be something to think about what should you read next or that but if you, it's it's a little bit more pleasant when spring comes and you can think about, well, in that quadrant last year I did the butternut squash, but it didn't do very well. I think if I put the tomatoes there and I really, really compost it, I think I might have more success. Like that's just, oh, that part of your brain can kind of calm down. So the, it eases the, the motor a little bit. It bring, brings down the RPMs. Yeah, I, 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 I suspect that's a not uncommon reason that people like to garden. You're kind of trapped in a completely different rhythm. And it's also entirely out of your control. 
Like, well, I mean, maybe it is in your control. <laughs> you actually are a good gardener, so I don't know what the hell I'm doing. But I like I just keep trying things, and it's interesting to see what works and what doesn't work, and to feel like there's a it's a never ending process of education. Like it's like being in a library, and you have read none of the books like you, you will always be finding something out it's always interesting but you're you are reading the books you recently wrote a piece for the new yorker on your addiction to seed catalogs for those who aren't familiar what are seed catalogs and why do you love them so so they come in the winter they usually start coming in Jan in december or january these beautiful colorful often glossy but sometimes kind of old-timey newspaper printy black and white drawings and they're from nurseries around the country, seed savers, seed preservers, seed developers. And you can place your order for seeds for spring. They're a little bit like, um, do you remember when Elaine worked for Jay Peterman on Seinfeld? I do. Yeah. So the the copy is a lot like Jay Peterman. Remember the guy who played <laughs> Jay Peterman and he had I that do. baritone voice? Him. In the distance, yeah. I heard the bulls. And I began running as fast as I could. Fortunately, I was wearing my Italian cap to Oxfords. <laughs> Sophisticated, yet different, without making a huge fuss about it. Rich, dark brown calfskin leather. Men's hole in half sizes, 7 through 13, price $135. So whenever I read the seed catalog copy, you're telling you about some plant. I always kind of hear it in that guy's voice. Because they're just, they're <laughs> hilarious. Like as if, you know... A rutabaga is going to change your life. Well, a lot of these catalogs are selling what are called heirloom seeds or heirloom plants. I, I know that word when it's attached to the word tomato, but what does heirloom mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, it just means a good tomato that you have to pay a lot of money and for. And it's kind of gnarly looking. Yeah. Right. The heirloom seed movement really is, you don't really hear that phrase until the 1960s mm. with kind of a back to the land movement when, you know, Many people are no longer farming, but there is a kind of hippie, kind of whole earth catalog passion. And a lot of those people are like, I want to grow the seeds that my great grandfather grew, my great grandmother told me about. And they go into attics and basements and they find old seed stock. And some of those people start seed banks because what happens in, over the course of the 20th century is that basically big agribusiness consolidates the seed stock and the biodiversity is really lost. And so when people want to grow or buy or sell heirloom vegetables or other kinds of heirloom plants, it's it's a way of trying to contribute toward restoring biodiversity. But it's also it's also a kind of screw you to, you know, big farm. Um well I'm sure Big Farm is, is falling over backwards in a faint because of our, <laughs> reading, our discussion. But um, rumor has it, rumor has it, Jill, that you have an air, a particular uh, heirloom going in your garden, a kind of beet. What is it? Yeah, so, well, I have it planted. It hasn't sprouted yet. So we'll see if I have this growing in my garden. So I did get these seeds um, from this place called Baker Creek, which is an heirloom seed company in Missouri. And they're called Kioja. It's an Italian heirloom of garden beet. Uh, they're uh, first identified in print in, I think, the 1840s. Um, but can I read you a little bit from the seed catalog description of this variety? Absolutely. 
Okay, but you got to like imagine that Jay Peterman guy or I don't know, Phil Hartman or Vin Scully. <laughs> Vin Scully. This is Vin Scully. <laughs> Kyoga beet is the most whimsical veggie in the patch. Slice the roots to reveal concentric rings of pink and white, and this fun variety adds pop to salads and pizzazz to pickles. Chiogo beet was originated in the historic fishing town in Italy, just across the lagoon from Venice. Dubbed Little Venice for its canals and ancient charms, local Venetians know that this is the town to visit for authentic family style. It just goes on. It's pizzazz. I li- you don't pizzazz. usually use words pizzazz, pizzazz anymore. Adding pizzazz to pickles. Well, what else are you growing in your garden? Flowers, trees, vegetables? I'm curious. Okay, so um, I have a lot of uh, tr- fruit trees. I have a blue pearmaine apple tree, which I got from um, Scott Farm in Dummerston, Vermont. The blue pearmaine is famous because of Henry David Thoreau. That's the only reason I have this <laughs> pearmaine apple, although my husband really loves these apples. They are actually really good. Um, Thoreau wrote an essay uh, in 1862 published in The Atlantic called Wild Apples. Um, well, if it and was it's in the Atlantic, kind of, it couldn't have been any good. If he had published couldn't it in have New been Yorker, any, couldn't have been any good. <laughs> you'd have but, to wait yeah, a few years. But eighteen sixty. But here's the thing: it's the middle of the Civil War, well, and the guy writes an essay about wild apples. I just love that. Like life does go on, and um, so he talks about the apple. Is this is this line where he says, "Surely the apple is the noblest of fruits." There's something about the kind of modesty. It's not a fancy fruit. And apple trees grow wild all over New England. So he's feeding himself, right? He's trying to live on no money. He's sort of recollecting his Walden years, but just in general, he's trying to live on no money. So there's a blue pearmaine that he goes to visit on the edge of a swamp, and he, he's, uh, he says that the, um, the apples are crisp and lively. Jill Lepore, thank you so much. And good luck with everything in your garden this season. Yeah, thanks. I'll send you some beets. By the way, I've had those beets. I've, you know, I've, you know, in a salad. They're delish. Okay, good. Good. I'm excited. The New Yorker's Jill Lepore. Jill is the author of These Truths, A History of the United States. And she'll be back on the program in a few weeks to unveil a big history project in time for the 4th of July. I'm David Remnick. Thanks so much for joining us today. Enjoy your time in the garden, and see you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Rita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, Avery Keatley, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.